our commitment to Christ, our loyalty to Him, is to be of such forceful, energizing strength that even our best love for our spouse or our earnest longing for our children or our genuine interest in our own physical well-being and deportment will actually be seen to look like total disregard or hatred in comparison. Today on the Song Time broadcast, we'll ask the tough questions why Jesus in his gospel proclamation calls people to hate all of their other relationships if they want to be his follower. Stay tuned for that message from Alistair Begg. But first, we're joined by Greg Gilbert once again as we talk about his book with a great illustration on how to tackle that difficult task of understanding and applying scripture to our lives. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. For all of our listeners who are in the upper states here of New England, of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and even there in New York, I have to admit I am a bit envious of you. I'm sure you would love to live on Cape Cod. Obviously, we have a great, uh, beautiful nature here and the beaches in the summer, but I long for the mountains. I enjoy, in particular, going up to the White Mountains, camping out on the Kangamangas, uh, hiking the mountains. In fact, early on, before my wife and I were even married, uh, we hiked one of the 4,000-footers, and uh, uh, she she learned her lesson, <laughs> but she knew with her eyes go open what she was marrying in someone who really enjoys the outdoors and enjoys hiking, enjoys climbing mountains. Um, she's more of a Cape Cod person than a White Mountains person, but let me just tell you, I am a bit envious of you. But for all of you who enjoy the mountains as well, you have a connection with our author for this week as we're joined once again by Greg Gilbert, who is a pastor and an author of this amazing book we've been discussing. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible, or How to Read and Understand God's Word. And he has a connection with us as well as he enjoys mountain climbing. In fact, interwoven throughout this book of understanding how to tackle and understand scripture is a story of his own experience of hiking to the boot camps uh, or to the base camp of Mount Everest. It's an amazing story. And Greg, you tell the story connection, explain to our listeners how this is interwoven in this understanding of of how to read the Bible. Yeah, so the, the sort of running illustration through the whole book is this trip that I took in 2017, I guess, uh, where I took a two-week hike, trek to Mount Everest base camp. Um, and so that's kind of a running theme through through the book. But uh, the, the, the sort of the idea is, is that before you launch out on this huge trek of reading the Bible, right, with all the mountain peaks and all the rest of it, this little book, The Epic Story of the Bible, is supposed to be the kind of you know, sitting around in the rainy hotel dining hall with your guide and a PowerPoint telling you what you're about to get, telling you, you know, what sites to look out for, telling you what dangers there are on the trail, giving you some idea of the path that you're about to be to be following. And so this book is kind of meant to act like that br- that briefing meeting where you're, you're given good information, uh, hopefully, and then when that's done, set off on the trek and read the whole Bible. Now, I probably would skip that meeting if I were actually going here because you know, <laughs> you're not I, a guy I, that, as a kid read the directions on the video game. Yeah, right. Like I, I didn't. I threw away the directions for all my Lego sets. Right. You know, like you'll yeah. figure it out as you go. 
<laughs> but uh, um, th- that's actually really important. That's kind of a foundational thing for understanding yeah. the Bible is having that kind of instruction, and the, the preamble uh, message that you know what you're looking for so you can start to see the themes as you're walking through. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I do in that book is is try to identify like ten major mountain peaks or ten landmarks in in the story of the Bible, it's similar to what what we, they did with us on the trek. Like it's, you know, first you're going to go to Namche Bazaar, then you're going to go to this monastery, then you're going to go to this little town, then you're going to see Mount whatever it is, and then we do base camp. And I just kind of had that in my head the whole trek, and it was super helpful. So I try to do that with the Bible. You know, you've got you've got creation, the fall, the flood, on and on and on. There are like ten of them. Uh, and it helps because because there are long stretches. It takes a long time in the Bible sometimes to get from one peak to another. And if you don't have your eyes set on the next one, you really can find yourself just getting bored, getting distracted. Whereas if you know, okay, I got to press through Judges and Ruth, but the next big mountain peak is the crowning of the king, and I'm going to get there, it, it really can encourage you to keep going. I think one of the things in playing with that illustration, a lot of people wouldn't even start out on a trek like that to, to, to hike to the base camp of Mount Everest. Now, be clear, you make this clear in the book, they didn't summit Mount Everest, but uh, even oh, just getting to the, the base camp is quite the, the hike. Uh, that seems insurmountable to a lot of people, so they would never even entertain it. But you're right. actually inviting people to read the Bible, and I think the, the imposition is, I don't know how to begin, I don't know where to go, I don't even know where to start, so I'm not even going to try. But how do you eat an elephant? Right, you got to do it like one bite yeah. at a time, and and it, it start slowly, but you make that progress as you go. Yeah, it's true, and you you just have to be encouraged that you can do it. I, I remember when I was when I took the first few steps on this trek out of the Lukla Airport in on the, on the foot of the foot of the uh, Himalayas, uh, I ran into these two, and I was a little bit scared of it. There's altitude sickness, and there's you can get knocked off the mountain by a yak, and the bridges can collapse, earthquakes, yada yada. So I was a little bit worried, but uh, as I was going out of Lukla Airport, these two, like eighty plus year old ladies, were making their way back up to the airport. And so I stopped and talked to them for a minute, and they, they were just finishing up their trek to base camp. And I was like, "All right, let's let's go. I can I can do this thing." Um, same thing with the Bible. I mean, it, it's a it's a daunting thing, um, but uh, it, it is absolutely worth it. And there are lots of helps. You can you can get a study Bible. Um, that story of redemption Bible that I did with Crossway, I, I think is still out there here and there. Um, and I think that's a big help uh, to, to people too. But yeah, take it a step at a time, have some help along with you. Don't, don't try to just eat the whole thing at once. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it can be done. We've been talking with Greg Gilbert about his book. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible. How to Read and Understand God's Word. It's a great resource and one with an interesting story that's interwoven there that gives a great illustration. How do you tackle such a difficult task of, of making the Bible a part of your everyday life? To know God, we must understand His Word, and yet it seems insurmountable. And yet, by little by little, as we grow in our faith, we become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. You can only start where you're at, but you can only move forward as you get into God's Word. So that's our challenge for you, and it's also the challenge of this book. A great resource. Find out more information by giving us a call, 508-362-7070, or head over to our website at songtime.com. 
Well, today we're talking about discipleship, what it really means to start where you're at and move forward in your process of sanctification to, to become more like Christ. Well, what does it really mean to become like Christ, to learn from him, to, to take his message and to apply it to our lives? Well, Jesus gives us the ultimate answer to that when he says that if you want to be his disciples, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross daily and follow him, you have to lay down your life, and in fact, all of your personal relationships have to come below, so far beneath your call and devotion to Christ that it would appear that you hate everyone else. These are some pretty strong words, but to help explain them to us from Luke chapter 14, we turn now in our study with Alistair Begg. Unless a man is loyal to Jesus before everyone else and everything else, he cannot be his disciple. Now, the very categorical way in which he speaks is forceful in the extreme, and obviously Jesus chooses to speak in this way in order to make the point. Nobody's in any doubt because there'll be an immediate reaction to this. Look at it. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, and his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he flat out can't be my disciple. Well, some of the people were standing there with their wives. Some of them had brought their children along. They loved their children. Indeed, the very reason they had brought their children was because they loved them so much, and they wanted them to hear this Jesus and perhaps become a follower of Jesus. Well, we've seen this kind of statement. You don't have to even turn a page. You just go across uh, to verse 12, where Jesus makes a similar categorical statement in order to drive home the point. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Now, what is that? A prohibition about having anyone in your family over to your home for dinner? Clearly not. So Jesus speaks in such a way, uses a figure of speech in such a way to make the point. In the same way as we saw when we studied verse 12, that when he says on another occasion, do not labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the food that yields eternal life. Is he saying there that you shouldn't work to get food? No. He's saying in terms of priority, the emphasis should be placed on that which yields fruit for eternity rather than the temporal benefits now. Now, this is not to denude his statement in any way at all. This is not to diminish it. This is not to try and uh, cover it over. It is exactly as it sounds, that Jesus is using the terminology of his time, and it is a typical biblical way of expressing preference, to say, I love this and I hate that. In other words, my love for this is so strong and so supreme that although I love this, in comparison to my love for this, this love actually looks like hate. Because Jesus, we know, told the people, I want you to love your enemies and do good to them that despitefully use you. So is he who said, love your enemies, now actually giving a, a categorical statement that we're supposed to love our enemies and hate our moms and dads? No. What he's saying is this, that our love for Jesus, our devotion to Jesus, our commitment to Christ, our loyalty to him, is to be of such forceful, energizing strength that even our best love for our spouse or our earnest longing for our children or our genuine interest in our own physical well-being and deportment will actually be seen to look like total disregard or hatred in comparison. Do you remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim, having read in the book, is stirred concerning his sins? And as a result of that, he begins to run away from his house. And Bunyan writes, So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door. When his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. He loved his wife. He loved his kids. They're at the door. What are you doing? Would you leave us behind for Christ? 
And the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. If you've got a girlfriend that can prevent you from being a disciple of Jesus, you haven't begun to understand. If you've got a job that can keep you from undying commitment to Jesus, your job means too much to you. If you have a member of your family who so consumes your emotions, draws out your energies, takes all of your strength, and leaves you with only marginal elements that you can give, as it were, to your desire to follow after Christ, then, loved ones, what Jesus is saying is you're calling in question whether you can really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus says, you know, if, if, if anybody doesn't do this, he's not going to be a very good disciple. That would be one thing, you know. If he says, you know, you're going to be marginal. No, he says, you can't be my disciple. If you're going to put these concerns first, if anyone or anything and even your own life means more to you than I do, then you can't be my disciple. How different is this from the average way in which we suggest that people might become the followers of Jesus Christ? I can tell by some of your faces even now. You're, you're sort of recoiling as if somehow or another an air conditioner was blowing on you and it's just blowing you back a little bit. You're saying, what is this? Well, yes, this is the kindest shepherd who ever lived speaking. This is the one who by his death gives life. This is the one who leaves all of eternity to come to our time-space capsule in order that he might declare the love of God for sinful men and women. And he says, I want you to understand. Do you love your life more than you love Christ? Just a few weeks ago now, when I had the privilege of being um, in Oxford, I went, as I had done actually about a year ago, back to a monument which many of you will know having visited there, which is adjacent to Balliol College. And it is the monument that was placed there for, uh, to commemorate uh, the burning at the stake of Ridley, Latimer, and Hooper, I think it was. We don't have time tonight except for me to perhaps stir within you an interest to read perhaps some of these great stories of the Reformation. And when we look for people who took seriously this kind of thing, we'll find ourselves there. Nicholas Ridley was born in 1503, a wee while ago. He was distinguished as a student, became a member of the faculty of the university. He was a fellow of Pembroke Hall. He was the chaplain to the university in 1532, and he was the master of Pembroke in 1540. But something happened to him along the way as he began to read his Bible. He started to read his Bible, and he determined that he had real doubts about the way in which the Lord's Supper was being conducted. And he was peculiarly concerned about the whole idea of transubstantiation. And the more he read his Bible, the more he came to the conclusion that it was unscriptural, that it was novel, and that it was erroneous. In 1540, he becomes chaplain to Henry VIII, and in circumstances later, he comes into direct collision with Queen Mary. And you'll have to read the rest of the story for yourself, but what happens to him is they burn him at the stake in the center of Oxford. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, they describe the circumstances. You can read it, you can buy it in the bookstore. In the conversation that is taking place between Latimer and Ridley as they're tied together at the stake and as they prepare them for burning. And then it says, And then they brought a light and kindled the fire and laid it down at Dr. Ridley's feet, to whom Master Latimer spake in this manner, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Why would anyone do that? Because he took seriously what Jesus said. If you're loyal to something or someone other than me, says Jesus, you can't be my disciple.
This passage here in Luke 14, where Jesus is talking about how we have to hate our family members and uh, leave all of our relationships to to be fully devoted to just one person, to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, it seems so heavy and so harsh. It is uh, in contrast to everything else that we want to believe about being a Christian. And we have to take this into context to understand that Jesus wants us to love our neighbors. He wants us to love our families. He teaches us to do that and to love others as Christ has loved us, to lay down our lives for them. But is Jesus being hyperbolic? Is he just using some extreme language here to make a point, but he doesn't actually mean what he's saying? I think that there is more to be said that Jesus is actually meaning what he says here, but within a very important context. To love Jesus, to be fully devoted to Jesus is the best way to love our neighbors and to to love those around us, to love our families, is to put Christ first. We actually have some biblical examples of this, and the first being the story of Abraham, who God told to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him to God. Now, we know the story, we know the end of the story, but we understand the process that Abraham had to go through in taking that the steps to sacrifice his son, to show his devotion to God. He did so with faith, knowing that God would raise his son from the dead, if that was the case. The point is that Abraham had to learn to put God first, but Abraham never actually lost his son. In fact, as A.W. Tozer points out in his book, The Pursuit of God, in the second chapter, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, a little hint in the title of that chapter, he says that he actually doesn't lose his son. In fact, he gains his son in a greater way than he's ever had before. The same could be said of the story of Job, who lost all of his treasures, all of his wealth, and all of his possessions, including all of his children. But in the end, in his faithfulness to God, choosing not to forsake God in the midst of all of his tragedy, God gave him double back everything he lost. He says, well, he didn't get back his children who had died. No, that's true. But what we have to understand is that although he had new children, those who had been lost were never truly lost. They were in God. Their souls were eternal. They're never truly lost. The whole point here is that by devoting ourselves to God, that is the best way to love others in our relationships. And nothing, here's Tozer again, uh, nothing ever given over to God is ever truly lost because it is entrusted in the one who knows us and loves our family better than we could even love our family. But when we don't love things in the proper order, and this is Augustine talking about uh, love out of order, if we don't love things in their proper order, ultimately, we hurt ourselves and we hurt the object of our love. Instead, we need to love God first and love his son and be fully devoted to him. Then we will have true love for those around us. I hope that this encourages you and maybe even causes you to scratch your head a little bit and go back and revisit this text here in Luke chapter 14. If we have been able to bless you, be a blessing in return by writing to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website, 
at songtime.com or look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue to talk about the cost of discipleship as we consider the cross we're called to bear. This is an expression of self-denial. This is not something that is going to be dealt with in a moment of fantastic devotion. No, actually what Jesus says in 9 is, take up your cross every day. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs>